be rolling out here in next coming weeks. We have 10 different spiritual disciplines trying to take a comprehensive view of the Christian life and have allotted 10 weeks of activity. So like we're going to be all doing the same thing for 10 weeks. There are 10 different leaders for each discipline represented in this group. Um, and so I want you to be aware of that so that as we progress there that um, you can be thinking about that, considering if you want to be a part of that. And the reason I say considering if you want to be a part of that is because I really want this to be a thing that if we if you start, you do it. The This sounds really nerdy, but when I was writing 10 for 10, it's also 100% if you count that as a division symbol. And I want it to be 100% involvement, as much as you can. I understand that there's extenuating life circumstances, but um, so does that, does that make sense? So, you know, like um, name off a discipline if you're one of the leaders. Learning. Uh, say it again. Learning. Journaling. Worship. Stewardship. Service. Scripture memory. Evangelism. Okay. So that's, so that's some of the idea. We're trying to get a comprehensive view, and we're, each leader is kind of setting some stuff up. So I just wanted you to be aware of that and start thinking, is this something I'm... I would like for you to be a part of it, but if you're not willing, then don't. Um, second announcement, and this is just... Um, this is an if-you-know-you-know you know sort of situation, but to all the girls in here... Um, know that the guys around you are very loving and will be willing to go to extreme lengths to protect you and to be there for you. Um, there's been some re recent circumstances where that was especially on display and so without getting into details, I, I want to applaud the guys and just praise them a little bit for their um, dedication, consistency, and concern to be attentive in various matters that are very pressing, very late at night, and, and very urgent. So, anyways, First John, we're back at it again. We're going to continue to be at it for a little while. And as a matter of fact, we're not even going to miss a beat. When I'm gone, Nathan's going to take it next week. I'm going to be back, and then I'll be gone again, and Josh is going to get it. So we're going to be, we're going to be rolling right through. Um, so John is... <clears throat> Um, one, one author described it as John is a little bit intimidating. He has his game face on throughout the first part of this letter. And it, it, it's, it's a very intimidating, very almost hard-nosed sort of teaching. And um, last week we dove into a section where John was a little bit, I don't know the word, like he was friendly. He was, con um, he was reassuring would be the best word for it, that there are there is room in the kingdom for spiritual babies as there is for spiritual fathers. And so we got to see where we are in our spiritual development. And and that was very assuring, very comforting to know that we're somewhere and that we're moving somewhere and doing something. This week, John is back onto his sort of game face mentality. And he, he jumps right back into it. He, we finished talking about the world system and how young men and fathers have conquered the world system, and we jump right back in to that sort of theme in form of test of the faith. I want to open with this question. Why is it, I know this is a kind of a deep question to jump right into, but why is it that the most intimate relationships in, in life also require exclusivity? Why is it that 
the the closest bonds require them to be in, in marriage you turn use the term monogamous, but I'm gonna use exclusive in this situation. I think because we're insecure and we need to be affirmed and we need to know that like we're the only ones Okay. Say it in, in practical terms, why would it reduce my intimacy with Joe if I had numerous girlfriends? Well stink. <laughs> <laughs> and why? The why would that stink? Because That's really what I'm getting at. Distracted by different people, so you kind um, of devote as much time to that one person as you would have otherwise. Okay. It takes something that's special in a way that this is something you only do or share with this person, and it contorts it to a point where it's it's no longer special. You're just, you're handing it out like uh, free pamphlets to a show. Reduces its value. Yeah. Okay. It's like the graph. So <laughs> investment and horizontal is closeness. So the more close you have to be, the more you're going to be investing. You know? <coughs> okay. Other thoughts? Yeah. You can't serve two masters. Okay. Absolutely. <coughs> Excuse me. I only have one friendship. <laughs> yes. I, I think we've all like. I think we've all experienced that desire to be exclusively the one, though. Romantically, but even in friendships, I think we've desired that intimacy where you're the first one that gets told a secret. You're the first one who knows. You're, you know, you, you're the first one for them to contact when they're sad. Whatever the case may be, we all have this desire to be special, to be loved. And honestly, we want other individuals, <clears throat> in some senses, to be completely satisfied in us. I mean, if you think about it, like that, that's part of the thing that we desire with marriage is that we want somebody to be completely satisfied in us and not have to go outside of us to have satisfaction. The same is true with God. Because there are things that God loves, there are things that God must hate. That makes sense how love necessitates hate. If you love something, you hate what is going to hurt that thing. And so God wants us to be satisfied in him. And as John Piper has famously said, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. God seeks his own glory, indeed, but the path to that is us having our deepest satisfaction being in him. And there is no middle ground. Either we are children of God or we uh, are partakers in the kingdom of light or we are children of Satan and in the kingdom of darkness. James 4, 4 through 5, I think this is a great place to start off. This is James' a little discussion on the world, um, and John has a similar discussion regarding the world in this section of the epistle, but here he presents no middle ground. Either you love the world, or you love God. If you love God, you hate the world, because you cannot love the two things that are opposed to one another in this situation. James 4, 4 through 5. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? Because we love God exclusively, we must therefore shun and hate the opposite of him, which is evil. Psalm 97.10, Proverbs 8.3, Psalm 119.104. And Psalm 119.104, that same refrain, you know, if you've read Psalm 119, it's kind of just 
sections uh, for the Hebrew alphabet. And that same refrain is repeated a few different times. I've only selected one just to get the idea across. Psalm 97, 10, Proverbs 8, 3, Psalm 119, 104. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the life of the sick. He lives of the saints. He delivers them from the hands of the wicked. Proverbs. Proverbs 8, 3. Beside the gate leading into the city at the entrance, you cries I probably gave you the wrong. I apologize. No, that's fine. Um, Psalm 119, 104 says it rather explicitly. Through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. When we come to understand the law and the word of God, we will hate, as we talked about last week, the world system. We touched on that ever so briefly. Um, tonight, I, I wanted to put up the, the outline that we're working through. I think, at least for me, it's a little easier to digest and absorb material when we know where we're going. So if you look into 1 John chapter 2, we are in verses 15 through 17. And this is how we've broken up the passage. First, we have the command, which, is, which there are two different aspects to. First, to not love the world. Secondly, not to love the things of the world. And then we are given reasons that we should not love the world because of who we are, because of what the world does, and because of where the world is going. So before we can pass this test, we must obviously understand it. Um, what on earth is the world? When I, when I say what, when he says world, uh, do not love the world or the things of the world, what jumps to mind? What is the world in your thoughts? The organized system of human civilization that is actively hostile to God and alienated from Him. Pretty decent. Other thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like the third planet, the solar system. Okay, <laughs> that is that's one possibility. Other thoughts? Science nerd. Yeah. What's that? Um, something that is not heavenly, godly, or holy. Okay. So first, it could be the created world. Um, this is, I do not believe that this is what the passage is implying, but it, that is one possible interpretation. And um, the reason it doesn't make sense is because God describes it as good, and post-fall, the psalmist extols the beauty of the created world. He was enthralled with it. So I do not believe that that is what it's referring to. Second, it could be referring to humans, the world. Um, however, that doesn't square either because uh, even in John 3.16, for God so loved the world cosmos it's being used in many different ways and so the world of people but third and i think chloe i i have a similar definition um third i, I believe this is a correct answer the world is the evil system of beliefs values and ideals that results in god hating behaviors as directed by satan let me repeat that and then i'm going to include some references after each section the world is the evil system of beliefs, values, and ideals that results in God-hating behaviors as directed by Satan. Let's start with the first bit. The world is the evil system of beliefs, values, and ideals. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not, are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So Paul is saying here that the ideals, the philosophies, the values and beliefs of the world 
Christianity is to cast those down and to fight against the very ideologies and philosophies that are underlying in this world. These ideals result in God-hating behavior. John 15, 18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. These God-hating behaviors, ideals, philosophies are directed at the bidding of Satan. Ephesians 2, 2 through 3, 1 John 5, 19. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. First John one, First uh, John five nineteen. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under control of the evil one. C.J. Mahaney, in his book entitled Worldliness, defines it this way. It is the loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. Thus, we are not to love the ideal, ideals, uh, belief systems, philosophies, all that. But rather, we are to put every thought captive. I think that verse is taken out of context a little bit. But we're supposed to take all these ideals, cast them down, and take these ideals and philosophies and bring them in captive for Christ. While we're here... What are some philosophies, ideals, beliefs, values that you find are pervasively pushed and taught, though unsaid in some ways, that are taught by the world system? What are various philosophies that you feel are eminent and being pushed? Take the easy way. Okay. Two that come to mind, uh, individualism and then um, I think the blending of masculine and feminine. I agree. Sexuality, relativism, violence, materialism. Yeah. Follow your heart. Yes. Unquestioned acceptance of everything. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Gratify self overall. Okay. Other thoughts? Okay, so uh, I've noticed this in school, especially uh, excessive wrong to those like who wrong you. Basically, taking immediate action to harm the people who harm you. There is no such thing as an absolute. Relativism, I think, is especially um, pronounced in this society. Yes. Um, I'd say just in general, like the entitlement mentality sort mm -hmm. of thing. That just you know, like you deserve the best. You you deserve to be given this or handed this or right. Exactly. Our conceptions of justice. Our conceptions of nearly everything are are tainted by the ideal ideologies that are pushed. And while there's plenty more to be said about this, the first component of this test, right off the bat, is a shunning of the ideologies pushed by the world. And so, if there's something contrary to Scripture, for instance, and you're you know you're like, I I just I really love you know follow your heart. That's 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 what I live by. And you continually see a pattern of living by ideals that are not grounded in Scripture and in God's teaching, that is an indication that you are part of the world. As I didn't include it here, but later in the book of 1 John, you know, he spirals down, gets a little deeper each time. He says that those who reject the apostolic teaching and listen to teachers who are false, they listen to them because they speak the language of the world. And so people listen 
to the language that they know. Christians follow true apostolic teaching. False teachers persuade non-Christians to follow their worldly teachings. Second part of that, which I think was overlooked by most commentators. Most commentators focused on not loving the world and the ideologies, but the sentence didn't finish there. It moved on to the things of the world. Um, when people say, and I don't, I don't think people do this intentionally, I think they're just flippant with their words, but when people say, I love that house, or I, I literally love that dress, or you know, I, I love X, how do you feel about, if you really think about the words that are being used, how do you feel about such statements? Kind of just quickly losing behind the words. You know, I think, I think our words are supposed to hold a certain level of weight. I'm supposed to be pretty careful with them. I don't like necessarily that the word that I'd use for a good, you know, chicken breast be the word I'll use for my future spouse. It's like, I love this. <laughs> it's not really, it doesn't really make me feel very good. Yeah, I'm going to get to this, but I don't think there's anything wrong with liking a great chicken sandwich. But I think it's a little strong to love, love that chicken sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it came out that way. <laughs> because it's how you were thinking it, obviously. <laughs> Do you truly mean what you say your life is pretty sad that that's what you love that's true which is why i really don't think people intentionally do that i'll give them the benefit of the doubt there colossians 3 2 matthew 6 25 33 not through but 25 and 33 john is say, not saying that it is wrong to use the things of this world um just to be just to clarify and we'll get back to that but i want to have these verses read first colossians 3 2 Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Matthew twenty-five thirty-three. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Oh, excuse me. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. John is not saying that it's wrong to have the things of the world. As a matter of fact, and we're not reading this, 1 John 3.17 presupposes that you do have things of the world. He says those who have the goods of the world and doesn't give them to his brother, that's another test of the faith. So he assumes that people do have and do use the things of the world. 1 Corinthians 7.31 illustrates very well in the teaching of Paul how the difference between loving, depending, and being absorbed with versus just using them. 1 Corinthians 7.31. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, or this world in its present form is possible. This shows that 
using the things of the world is distinct from loving the things of the world. Just because you use it doesn't mean you have to love it. it. It's a tool. It's a tool to get through life and to support the cause of the kingdom. It is not the end of life. And so what Paul, I'm sorry, what John is saying here is that if you love the ideologies of the world, and number two, if you love the things that the ideologies of the world system are, is producing, that's another ant. Does that make sense? So it's both the ideologies and the products. Rather, our focus should be Godward. There are a few different reasons why we are not to love it. And the first one is because of who we are. We were once enemies of God, as described by James and explained by Paul. Colossians 1.21 And you who once were annihilated and hostile in mind of doing evil deeds. So we were hostile to God, God-hating, not wanting God, not seeking God. 1 John 4.4 4. As this is kind of goes along with what we were talking about last week. First John four four only seconds the teaching that Christians are those who have overcome Satan and the world system. You dear children are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you great is greater than the one in the world. There's a different passage that talks about how have you overcome them except your faith. So if Christians are defined as people who have overcome Satan and the world system, and instead we have entered into a loving fellowship relationship with the Father. Why can we not love both at the same time? Matthew 6, 24, Romans 6, 1 and 2, and then 11. I'm not reading the whole passage. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Romans 6, 1 and 2, and then skip to 11. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? In the same way... Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. In First John, this is the section that we're referring to. I apologize for not reading it off the top. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we were once God-hating, but have turned and had, have had the body of sin and rebellion crushed and destroyed and have overcome the world system. Now, that does not mean that we cannot be allured by the world system. Romans 6.12 Therefore do not therefore do not let sin reign in your uh, mortal body so that you so that you will obey its evil desires. Just because you have this in the spiritual sense the sin body is crucified doesn't mean that it's not a struggle to live that out in the practical sense. Paul recognizes that while we are still in human form, the spiritual reality is what we must get in line with. So we must get our physical life to align with the spiritual reality that has already taken place at the moment of justification. Paul Washer put it very, very well. Uh, the proof of conversion is not the absence of warfare with the flesh, but the opposite. The proof of conversion is not the absence of warfare with the flesh, but the opposite. Galatians 5.17 For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit against the flesh. 
These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. The flesh is on one hand, the spirit's on the other, and you're fighting back and forth. And so we don't always do what we want to do. We have overcome the world system. Romans 6 clearly teaches that unregenerate people are enslaved to sin. They do the bidding of Satan and the world system all the time. We are no longer enslaved by that, but we can still be allured by it. Does that make sense? How there's a difference between bondage to sin and allurement of it from the righteous realm. When we fall into sin, we hate that. And we cry out as one who loves God. Nevertheless, our entire life, um, which was defined by sin, if it is defined by sin, we cannot say that we love God. Truly, as Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so that is why that this test is because of who we are. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because you can't love two masters at one time. So this is a test about who you are fundamentally, whether you've been regenerated or remain in your unregenerate, unconverted state. Um, because we had a bit of discussion regarding depravity already in the series, I don't want to rehash it. Uh, I just want to state some sentences. I'm not supporting, like, I can support them if you want. I just want to save time and not rehash all the same material. But I think it's essential for our discussion. Sin, by definition, is the breaking of God's law, which is found in 1 John. Sin is rebellious and goes against God. Sin is humanly impossible to cure. Sin is humanly impossible to cure. Sin is universal, affecting all men. Sin is the cause for evil in the world. And most importantly in this discussion, sin is the reason that humanity is enslaved to sin and to Satan and thus to his world system, Romans 6.20. Romans 6.20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. So, when we were in bondage to sin, we were free from doing righteousness, and vice versa. Now that we are in bondage to righteousness, we are free from doing sin. That's the idea of the passage. So what the world does, and this gets to that classic, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This is truly the heart of all temptation and what the world does. But let me pose this question before we get there. Where does human sin come from? Where does human sin originate? Where does it come from? First, the first disobedient acts by, by Adam and Eve. Okay. Um, well, I mean, really, that's, that comes from, comes from Satan. That comes from the world. It does. Allow me to pose this question. If you got a group of all Christians and you lived in a kind of utopian society where you know the walls are erected around the city and no sin is allowed in you know theoretically no bad activities no bad ideas people had the best education they had all the education they had all the clean water they had the perfect society and environment would there still be sin? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because sin, and we talked about this briefly, but we're going to really get into it this week. Sin, this is, this is absolutely essential to catch. And 
uh, may I say, for philosophical wrestlings, this is also really, really essential to think about. James 1, 13 through 15. This is the key passage to understand where sin comes from. And until you grasp that, it, not, a lot of this is not going to make sense. Sin originates here, not out there, in here. The world system is not the place that causes me to sin. Sin comes from this guy with two thumbs. James 1, 13 through 15. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. This is complex, so please catch this. God provides a way of escape in every temptation which he allows, though he does not cause the temptation. He provides a way of escape in every temptation which he allows, but he does not cause. Max, Matthew 6.13, 1 Corinthians 10.13. He does not into temptation, but Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The prayer is to not have that allowed. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Oh, temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Man is always culpable and responsible for whether or not he chooses to exit a temptation without sinning because God is always faithful to provide the way of escape out of that temptation. Man is subjected to temptation when the lusts inside of him are allured by Satan and his world system. It's essential. The lust comes from inside, but we, as James said, when this lust has, when we are deceived and led astray by our own lust, then we are enticed. They originate here, but they are allured by stuff out there. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, and 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. If you're asleep now, it'd be a good time to wake up because these are great verses. Um, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Take the whole armor of God that you will be able to stand in the evil day, having done all to stand. First Peter 5, 8-9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Last week I said that, you know, you don't need Satan on your back to cause you to sin. And I, w I want to clarify that and go a little deeper here. Sin originates in us, but is drawn out by Satan. The lust naturally already present inside of us is roped in and trapped by Satan, by what Satan has set up in the world. The sinner himself thus is responsible for sin. Because a process originated in man's heart. Once man, man's heart has begun lusting, the things of the world begin enticing him 
in this process. Jesus affirmed that sinfulness begins in the heart of man, and Paul explains that it's passed down from Adam, as you pointed out. But I want this is a long passage, but I think this is truly a relevant passage because Jesus affirms hardcore here that sin, though the world system is sinful and alluring, sin always starts in the heart of man. Mark seven fourteen through twenty three. When he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things that come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. The things that are evil are coming from here, not just out there. And so here we step back into 1 John. For, for all that is in the world, and now John is about to categorize what's in this whole system. This whole system of God-hating, bad ideologies designed by Satan. He's about to categorize them for us, almost in a systematic way, revealing. And these are... And these are not new to you if you've been around Christianity for some time, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These will make much more sense to you, though, if you understand the origination of sin. Lust of the flesh. This is the desires of the flesh. Uh, sarks, uh, sarka, if you've, um, this is very interesting, if you've studied anatomy at all, you may have heard of the sarcolemma. Uh, it's a organ that releases calcium, and the idea is being, it's flesh, it's meaty. And so this is, it's that Greek root of sark. This right here, the lust of the flesh is the desire, the lust of the flesh are the desires of unredeemed humanness. That's how scripture uses the word flesh. So lust can, is used positively and negative throughout the New Testament. And it just means desires of flesh, desire of unredeemed humanness is how the New Testament often uses that conception of flesh. So the first is the desire of unredeemed humanness. Jesus, as we just listened to, lists what they are in the prior passage. And there's a classic list by Paul in Galatians 5, uh, verses 16 through 18, and then verse 24. Galatians 5, 16 through 18, and verse 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the thing you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So these are the very basal desires. You know, you hear adultery, fornication, you know, all these very animal-like desires that are very base to human nature. And the, Jesus affirms his teaching, as you read, and then Paul affirms it as well, that these are from flesh, the unredeemed humanness, that even as believers, we still remain in with some unredeemed humanness. 
Now this is very interesting in connection with the lust of the eyes. The desires in our flesh are aroused by the things that we see with our eyes. Sinful desires are activated and fueled by what we see. Psalm 101.3, Job, Job, Job 31.1, Matthew 5.28-29. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. I hate what faithless people do. I will have no part in it. I will not look on things that are evil. Job 31.1. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. I made a covenant with the eyes. Why? Because those sinful desires reside in Job. And so what must he do in order to prevent those from being aroused? He must make a covenant with his eyes. A prime example of a failure in that department, David. Those lustful desires being present within him, he did not make that covenant with his eyes, and those lusts were aroused and executed. Jesus teaches the same thing in Matthew 5, 28-29. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. That's, that's basically what Jesus is teaching right there. It starts in the heart, but that look is accomplishing the same thing. Matthew 6, 19-23, another very insightful passage. If our eye is clear and healthy and we focus on the kingdom of God, we will have light in our body. But if our eye is evil, that is, if we focus on the wrong things, we shall only have darkness. Matthew 6, 19-23. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So why are people lustful? We're going to just quick review and then we're going to move on. Why are people lustful? Because they have evil desires in their heart. Is that lustfulness caused by another? No. Can that lustfulness in the heart of whatever sense, not just sexually, can that lustfulness be aroused by things out there? Yes. Let me, let me, let me bring it a different way. Truly, this, people should be able to walk down the street unclothed. Why can that not be the case? Because that's tempting to us. Absolutely. Did their walking down the street call it, like make us be lustful? No. That starts where? In here. That should be, that they should be able to happen without even the remotest hint of lust. But why can it not? Because people are they are tempted from without. And when they see what they want, what is already present within them, and what they already desire, they are allured. So that is the lust of the flesh, basal animal desires inside of you, animalistic desires, aroused 
by the lust of the eyes, the desires that you see, the things you let in with your eyes, then arouse the things of the flesh. That only leaves one more thing, and this goes down to the root of it all, the boastful pride of life. The boastful pride of life. What underlies all evil, truly? What underlies all evil? Pride. Why? Because to be evil, we would have to believe that our way is better than God's. Yeah. We see that man has these evil desires placed within him. And why? Because he wants to be the sovereign. This is what pride has done from the beginning. This is the boastful pride of life where man wants to have accomplishments and achievements and accolades due to his own doing and certainly not God's. And thus man wants to rely on no one. Why, you might ask, because if he depends on someone else, who's going to be worshipped and honored? If man does it all, if he is sovereign and he sets up his own, this is right and this is wrong, if he sets up his own moral system, then who's to be worshipped? Man. And after all, that is what pride wants, is to be worshipped, whether that is in Satan, in the original sense, or in, or in man. Man always wants to play the role of God. Psalm 10, 2 through 4, 6, and then classic passage here, Romans 1, 20 through 22. Pride fully expressed desires to be worshipped. Psalm 10. In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. So the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. Oh, excuse me, it was, uh, oh yeah, two through four, it's excuse me. Um, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. This, this man who's proud in his heart says there is no God, adversity come, adversity go. Guess who's going to be able to withstand it all? This guy. That's the mindset of the wicked and the proud is to say, I don't need anyone. I am self-made. I'm self-reliant. And if you're in that position, you should be able to be worshipped. God is self-reliant, self-existing, self-producing, and thus... He can be worshipped because he is all-powerful and sets that up in that fashion. Rome, Romans 1, 20 through 22. For, he, for his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. We wanted to be wise, and that actually made us fools, as humanity goes. Um, here's how God thinks. Here's what God thinks about that. Acts 12, 21 through 23. It's not real positive. Acts 12, 21 through 23. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're good. On the appointed day, Herod was wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne, delivered the public dress to the people. 
who shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. He didn't take too favorably to that. <laughs> I was actually in that spot in Israel. Um, I was at the amphitheater where Herod Agrippa was, and the spot still stands there today, right where he was probably sitting. And, uh, you know, kind of in that honorable, you know, venerated position, you know, sitting there, all the people around him. And this is the voice of a God. You can, you can almost hear it standing down on the base of the amphitheater. And, um, yeah, just like that. As well, it says in the Old Testament, I will share my glory with no one. And um, luckily, not all of us who commit such a sin are struck down immediately. But um, I would say the, the emotion towards it from God is no less displeasurable. Where is the assassination of the Lord ever? Indeed. And, some, and some people believe that the New Testament is where God became a pacifist. That's a It's really, that is a very, there are some really interesting thoughts out there regarding, I mean, historically, some of the worst heresies have come in the fact that the Old Testament God is a different God from the New Testament. So that is a very historically rooted position. There are two examples in Scripture that I want to use to illustrate lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, progression. There are two situations where Satan is tempting, and it's the exact pattern that he uses. Um, and so I, as we read these, I'm, I'm about to ask you where you see each of these in those stories. And so as you, as you listen, I want you to think about where you see lust of the flesh, basal animal, human fleshly desires. Second, lust of the eyes. I see that out there. I want it. I need it. I've got to have it. And then third, pride of life. First in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then both, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So Satan began by questioning God's revealed world, word rather. He accuses God of being restrictive, basically, and you know, God isn't out for your good. He's just a divine killjoy, cosmic killjoy out there to rain on your parade. And Eve kind of plays into this a little bit, if you'll notice. She says, or touch it. That was not what God said. He said, don't eat of it. And Eve comes along and says, eat of it or touch it. So she's kind of, she's going along with this at this point. Where do you see the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life in this passage? That the fruit of the tree was good for food, so flesh, pleasing to the eye, the eyes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, that would be the pride. Absolutely. What was Satan's promise with the pride? To become like God. And what does man always want to be? 
I want to be sovereign. I want to make the rules. This is a this is a very first instance where it was not super successful. I, I'm sorry, it was it was very successful for the campaign of Satan, not super successful for mankind. It was also Satan's downfall of wanting to be God, wanting to be like God. Yes, absolutely. And he played right into the same thing with humans. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Listen for the same things here. All right. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. At the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And and he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you uh, to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put uh, the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, where is it? It's a little bit less clear than the Genesis passage. I'll grant that. So yeah, the pride would definitely be in operating among the cities of the world, saying, you just worship me, they'll worship you. Okay, other thoughts? Mm-hmm. Other thoughts on the three? Yeah. Less the flesh being in creating the bread, less than the eyes, um, seeing all the kingdoms of the world, pride of life, ruling all the kingdoms of the world. To see the pride of life and the fact that Satan just kind of says, You are the Son of God, and so the sovereignty that goes with that as well. Mm-hmm. I think the pride is also seen in like the, the challenge, right? Of mm-hmm. if you're God, then just have your angels Job. rescue you, mm-hmm. like, yeah, just do it, you know, like that kind of challenging of like, Yeah, you're powerful enough to show us. Yes, so I, I think there, I think the. Probably, perhaps one of the biggest understatements in the Bible. After forty days, Jesus was hungry. It just literally says he was, and he hungered. <laughs> like, thank you, Captain Obvious. And so you had that first lust of the flesh. Boom, hungry. Just turned into some bread, which I, I understand that. Um, and secondly, look at all these kingdoms. See them. Don't do it. Look at all those chickens. <laughs> With the hunger statement, the God has designed the body to not notice you're hungry after so many days of not eating. And whenever you get like to the point where you're going to die, then all of a sudden your body is hungry again. 
And so, you know, it, it seems sort of stupid that it would say, and he was hungry. Like, it's like, well, yeah. But, you yeah. know, it's also, he, you know, the he didn't have the feeling that hunger was a hunger of, I'm literally about to die, mm -hmm. and I need food right now. And so, I just, just I'll be honest, if, yeah, yeah, if it were me, I would totally turn that rock. You know, if the devil told me to, I'd say, hey, heck with that noise. <laughs> yeah, if I had the ability to turn rocks into bread, I'd use that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All the carbs. <laughs> and, and indeed, finally, when he could have just, you know, in front of a bunch of people, glide down from the top of the temple. Yeah, that, that's a pride of life thing. And so we see the same temptation there again. Um, there is a quote that I must include, even though I didn't have it written in. It's just, I can't not. Um, when people say, judge not, lest you be judged, um, there's a certain man who responds, twist not scripture, lest you be like Satan, as he did at the end of this passage. But anyways. Um, finally, the last reason, because of where the world is going, we're just going to go through a list of verses here. Um, and I'm going to say at the top of this, this is not my area of expertise, eschatology. It's not my strong suit. Um, but very clearly taught in scripture, the world is not going to be here. So in a rational sense, it doesn't make much sense to buy into the program because it's going to be destroyed. So you really don't want to buy in. That's kind of the third reason as to why we shouldn't um, love the world. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4, and 10 through 12. Not the whole passage. And then 1 Corinthians 7, 31 once again. Revelation 18, Mark 10, 30. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus was revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Jesus is going to come back, destroy stuff, and all the people who have been unjust in persecuting Christians and rejecting the gospel, their justice will be meted out. Second Peter 3, 3-4 three through four and 10-12. through 12. Um, This is basically saying that literally the elements of the earth will be melted away in fervent heat. 2 Peter 3, 3-4, and 10-12. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with war, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat in the earth, and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people are you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? First Corinthians seven thirty-one. <clears throat> Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. Revelation 18, 21 through 22. This is an important thing, too, because Babylon 
which is a mystery, and there's plenty of guesses about what it is. It is literally called the mystery Babylon, but um, the, it obviously has something to do with the general world systems and um, procedures and uh, way the world carries out society. That too is going to be destroyed. Revelation 18, 21 to 22. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman or any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. Mark 10.30 as Jim Elliot remarked, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Mark 10.30. You will fail to receive a hundred times as much in, the pre in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with, with persecu perse yeah, persecutions. Sorry. Very good. And in the, in the age to come, um, eternal life. So we are, as verse 17 says, and the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So all this lust, all this flesh, all this desire, the world itself, the whole system, is going to pass away. But those who do the will of God abide forever. And that is what that passage says. In, you know, it describes what we have in this present age and in the age to come, eternal life. Christians will always have life, which is the ability to respond to divine stimuli and have that intimate relationship with God for all of eternity. Now, those are the reasons that we are not to love the world and the things of the world. And so that is, that inherently is a test. It's not that you, it's not that we don't struggle with the allurement of the world, but do you love the world systems? Do you love the things of this world? That is a test of genuine faith. If you find that your life is dominated by characteristics of loving the world, then you should take an honest assessment of whether you are his or not. This is not following the outline of the text, but I wanted to finish with just a couple verses in case that you do find that you are in love with the systems of the world. Scripture does have a bit to say, both in warnings and steps to correct. Uh, Matthew thirteen twenty-two. He, this, what's coming up in First John will test um, the next test of the faith is logical but while there are some who may claim to be a Christian if you love the world here's what will happen Matthew 13 22 as Rome was sown among thorns this is the one who hears the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the world and proves unfruitful so the gospel seed lands in the heart of man Boom, sprouts up, looks like a Christian, looks a lot like a Christian. The cares of the world, the weeds come in, the desires of the world and choke it out and it fades away and does not continue on because it allowed the weeds of the world to kill it. And that is true. There's a New Testament example of this, 2 Timothy 4.10. This is a man who has served with Paul his whole life. Okay, not his whole life, but you know, his adult life for a fair amount of time on the missionary journeys. But now, Second Timothy, Paul is coming to the end of his life. This is it. Paul sees the end. He knows that his head's about to be severed from his body. And he knows things are not good. The 
you know, the temperament of the court is not in favor. And he's forsaken. He's forsaken by all that are around him, pretty much, except for a couple. But here is a very poignant example of what it's like to love the world. 2 Timothy 4.10. Don? Demas? Demas. Uh, Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. So Demas, in love with this present world, has forsaken me and gone to Thessalonica, a cultural center where there's all the things that you could want, all the ideologies, everything. So this man, in love with the world, when it got too tough and Paul, things weren't looking so positive anymore, he jumped ship because he loved the things of the world and not the things of the kingdom of God. Back in that James 4 passage where we began, after his discussion about the world and from where you know wars and fights come among us, you know, he gives a ten point. He gives ten points about what to do if you find that you are indeed someone who loves the world. He gives a salvation plan for people who love the world. That's what's found at the end of Galatia, uh, at James four, James four six through ten. But he gives greater grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. These are the ten steps right after he's talking about those who love the world. First, submit. Second, resist. Third, draw near. Four, cleanse. Five, purify. Six, lament. Seven, mourn. Eight, weep. Nine, turn your laughter. Ten, and perhaps, I don't know, it's just so fitting. Humble yourself before God Almighty. What's the final bit of the world system? The boastful pride of life. And what's the final way to... Become regenerated as you run away from loving the world system is to forsake that, to hate it, and to say, I am not sovereign of my life, but God is sovereign, and to submit to his lordship instead of being lifted up in hellish pride. And so thus goes the fifth test of the faith. You love the world, love the systems. Um, and so I, I pray that you, you will be able to take an honest introspection of where your affections are if they are set on things above or on things of this earth. I believe that Andrew, I just, I, anyone have a birthday in the like past two weeks? Yeah. Oh, did you? Did, did you happen to have one? What? Did he have a birthday? His birthday's in November. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. He, <laughs> he, he, did, he didn't know. He wasn't paying attention. Oh, that's all he didn't doing, care. All he, all he was doing was hitting Y. He was like, I just, I just. The entire time. Yeah. That's what I was asking the entire time. 
We are going to stack pickle because some gentlemen have decided that they want to spend twenty dollars or possibly, or possibly. finish a burger in a certain amount of time and get it for free. So yes, we'll be heading there tonight, but that's.